This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Palantir Technologies. Foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. We seem to be at a juncture where... Putin is certainly continuing to try to amass the force that he would need to to really go at uh, Kiev and the other large cities. If in the process of doing that, it's not going well, and they were to consider using chemical weapons, uh, my sense is that that would probably be a dividing line for the Chinese, although um, it wasn't in Syria. Chris Johnson is the CEO of the China Strategies Group. He is a former senior CIA China analyst, and he is the former head of the China program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Chris has been on our show many times before, and he joins us today to talk about how the Chinese are reacting to Russia's attack on Ukraine. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Chris, welcome again. You and Sumi Terry are competing for the most frequent guest on Intelligence Matters. <laughs> I meant to count this morning to see if I was in the lead, but I didn't get around to it. Um, Chris, we are living through a very difficult time in Ukraine. The intimidation of the Russian military buildup, the invasion itself, which we're still going through, the use of some of the most brutal of attacks by the Russian military. And you and I are now going to look at that all from the perspective of China, which I think is incredibly important. And maybe the place to begin, Chris, is the broad Russia-China relationship You know, before Ukraine. How would you have described it? What was it based on? How do you think about that? Sure. Uh, well, I think I would have described it as 
a partnership of mutual interest and a partnership of mutual grievances. And note that I didn't say that it was a marriage of convenience, which I think is too dismissive of what's been happening in the relationship, certainly over the last decade, maybe even a little bit longer ago than that. But more importantly, I think in the current context of what we're seeing uh, with Russia and Ukraine, I also didn't describe it as a new access, as um, certainly the Trump administration implied in its national security strategy in 2017 by describing the Chinese and the Russians as sort of on the same level in terms of our new strategic competitors. And interestingly and perhaps troublingly, uh, explicitly now being uh, shaped by some in the Biden administration, or at least it seems they're trying to convince us that it is a new access, perhaps all of the old access powers. Um, In terms of how I would have described it, the mutual interest side of the relationship is very clear. You know, China needs oil, gas, wheat, other commodities, and in various ways, military technology, and Russia has all of those things. And I think as what is currently playing out in the Ukraine situation highlights, Russia needed and needs stability on its far eastern frontier to be able to focus on shoring up its western near abroad, or at least that's certainly how they see it. And then obviously, of course, especially in the current context, they need Chinese cash. Um, As to the uh, set of mutual grievances, my sense is they both certainly share a disdain for the U.S.-led international order. And they don't think that the U.S. and its allies should be able to dictate either the governance system that countries can choose for themselves. And they certainly don't like the U.S. abusing, as they put it, uh, their its dominance of the world financial system, what the Chinese refer to as long-arm jurisdiction, uh, to punish governing systems that they don't like. In terms of what else it is based on, in my mind, obviously the big elephant in the room, and there's just no denying the importance of the personal relationship between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin. And in my sense, that's really composed of three things. The first is, uh, well, the, the base point is that when the, each of them look at the other, they basically see themselves. And I think that's a very important uh, piece of the puzzle. And if you uh, like yourself, you're going to like the, somebody like you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We all like people like us, right? Um, but, you know, what what do they see when they look at the other guy? The first thing I th- they see, I think, is somebody who is strong and large and in charge within their system, uh, just like they are. The second is that I think they both, uh, in different ways, of course, but they both have this sort of certain messianic quality or perception of themselves as a man of history, man of destiny, out to achieve great things for themselves and for their country. And I think most importantly, uh, they both share a desire and a commitment to going to the mattresses, if necessary, to protect those systems. And then just a final word on the the Russia-China relationship as it existed, I think, before this crisis. I've noticed that I think a lot of it is is sort of generational as well, because, you know, how else can you explain all the different analytic takes and so on on, on what that relationship is like? I think for um, older analysts who uh, either directly participated in the uh, rapprochement between the U.S. and China in the 70s uh, or, you know, were heavily influenced by it, they tend to emphasize the uh, the challenges, the distrust, the historical grievances in the relationship. And I think much younger analysts uh, tend to view it almost the opposite, that this mm. is indeed mm. a new axis. And I think people in my cohort perhaps kind of see it as somewhere in the middle, more like what I described as, as this partnership of uh, both mutual interest and mutual grievance. Chris, do you think the Chinese knew about Putin's plans in advance? Do you think Putin told Xi what he was going to do? 
I don't think he told him what he was going to do. Uh, you know, there's been obviously a lot of speculation that right. that could have happened uh, at the uh, opening ceremonies. You know, they had a meeting on the margins of that and rolled out this declaration, right, that <laughs> we're all scrutinizing now for, for what it might mean. So I don't think he explicitly told them, in part because I just don't think that's their relationship. And perhaps equally, if not more interesting, there was a lot of speculation before that meeting that Xi Jinping might to- tell Putin, don't do it, right? And my sense of that is that not only Xi Jinping, but I think most Chinese would, would see that almost as rude. <laughs> what, I, uh, what I do think he probably told Putin, however, was if you're going to do it, uh, make sure you have something approaching a passable justification. And of course, in their, you know, all facts, uh, propaganda, odrome, that's a pretty broad definition. Uh, but something, if you want any support from me, that I can hang on to. And I think we can debate, you know, whether what's happened uh, would, would fit that category or not. And, and, and as the Chinese were watching the military buildup, probably getting information from, from Russia, mm-hmm. um, how do you think they thought this was going to play out before it started? Well, there's been a lot of controversy over that, too, I think. And, and uh, the general view, I think, that's out there, certainly in the media and so on, is that they were surprised uh, that they thought he was just building up as part of a bluff. Um, that's not my sense. My sense is that certainly at the very top levels of the leadership, and I would include President Xi in that, there was a a sense that he would go in. And I think it was that not only would he go in, though, but that he would remain in the east, right? So focus on the eastern parts of Ukraine, certainly not sweep uh, it with five different points of attack, you know, as as we've seen. And I think their assessment, as you said, based on the intelligence that they would have been getting from the Russians uh, about the Ukrainian military, they thought it would be quick and over fast because of Russian military superiority. Do you also think they were surprised by the Western response? Almost oh, definitely. Yeah, no no question. Uh, you know, my sense of it is that in the grand scheme of things, the Chinese really were not focused that much and probably still aren't on what's happening on the ground in Ukraine, you know, from a sense of China's interests. Obviously, they have to pay attention to what's happening to uh, tactically position themselves. But my view is that they had two primary areas of focus, both of which were what we might call second and third order effects, which would be first, um, would the U.S. actually back up the uh, rhetorical chest thumping that was happening in the run-up to the, uh, the invasion about uh, you know very strong financial sanctions, uh, technology restrictions, thing like that, and the second was uh, could the U.S. manage to keep, you know, in their mind, those unreliable Europeans uh, on side as part of a multilateral coalition, uh, given, you know, the scale of the threat to European security, which would, is obviously uh, significant. Um, they cannot be liking the answers to either of those questions or observations, uh, at least however many days we are now into this conflict. Um, so a U.S. that did not respond with tough sanctions and a West that did not come together would have served Chinese interests, correct? Uh, yeah, or certainly would could have given them uh, sent them wrong signals, right, uh, about things they might be considering. I'm sure we'll talk about Taiwan at some point here. Since since the invasion, you know, we're now a couple of weeks into it. Um, since the invasion, how do you think the Chinese assess what's happening? whether it's in their interests, has their view evolved in any way? Where do you think they are today in thinking about what's going on? 
Yeah. I, I, my own view is that their view hasn't changed, or at least their um, the way they're prosecuting that view hasn't changed. So there's been a lot of speculation um, in, in media takes and, and elsewhere. Um, you know, each time there's a phone call between maybe President Xi, and we had one with he and the president's, uh, or the uh, chancellor of Germany and the president of France. Uh, his foreign minister has done the same thing with his equivalents in those countries. And, you know, in those discussions, they'll often say things, well, we would like, you know, peace and uh, dialogue to be the solution here and uh, that it is in everyone's interest that this end uh, and so on and so forth. And that's often interpreted as the Chinese uh, pivoting seems to be a word that's used a lot away from Russia or, you know, having second thoughts about their embrace of Russia and so on. I don't read it that way. You know, to me, it's about the fundamentals of what the Chinese are communicating. And if you read their media every day, which I do, uh, you can see that it still blames the U.S. for the crisis. Uh, there was just a, a really hard-hitting and, and fascinating, in a way, uh, People's Daily piece uh, earlier this week about the U.S. as the empire of lies, uh, for example, which is uh, straight out of Russian propaganda as well. Um, so no real sense that uh, they are rethinking, if you will, in a meaningful way. And I think in terms of your question about whether they view this all as in their interest, my sense is that unsurprisingly, they're very conflicted, you know, on that score. Uh, they certainly wanted to and want to reap the benefits of what they described in their February 4th declaration as their no limits partnership with Russia uh, without, in theory, um, doing damage to the relationship with Ukraine not so much as Ukraine itself, although they did have uh, certainly some trade relationships there and so on, but mainly as it relates to Europe and the hope that they could keep the Europeans kind of on side, if you will, as, as part of the balancing act. Uh, my sense, however, also, though, is that during the leadership de uh, deliberations that the Chinese had uh, that occurred, you know, there was this period, and I think it was the second week of the Olympic Games in, in Beijing, where the top leadership, the, the Politburo Standing Committee, just disappeared from the headlines and so on. And these days, that's very unusual for Xi Jinping to disappear from the media for a week's time and his colleagues as well. And my guess is that sure, uh, surely, you know, Xi Jinping would have told his colleagues that whatever would ensue on the ground it would be in keeping with uh, his correct, important word, uh, ideological framing of, of the setup, if you will, of the international system and the global order these days. And there, you know, we need to emphasize this phrase that they often use, changes unseen in a century. And in the West, uh, when that phrase is used, it's usually interpreted as, well, this is a reflection of Chinese hubris. You know, the East is rising, the West is declining, it's our time, etc., but there's an obverse to that. You know, the Chinese are, are good communists, so therefore they're interested in uh, contradictions. Yeah. And, that, and that is that they fear, right? And they're anxious about the chaos that will ensue in the international system as the current hegemon, the U.S., inevitably declines in, uh, in their mind. And I think we saw a manifestation of that. A lot of analysts, uh, myself included, uh, for at least the early going, thought that the Chinese would have a difficult time backing the Russians the way they have because it is in such conflict with their longstanding principle of uh, focusing on uh, sovereignty and territorial integrity. And of course, Ukraine is a sovereign country. Um, but I think their assessment of this uh, piece of the changes unseen in the century tells them that the new world global order is a multipolar one where that is governed exclusively by uh, pure power politics. And as such, 
they were quick to jettison those uh, those uh, principles uh, in order to uh, advance what they think is their strategic interest. So, so Chris, I'm I'm wondering, you know, given given the February fourth communique, given the the language about a strategic partnership with no limits. Are there folks in the world who are placing any responsibility for what happened here on China? Oh yes, uh, in our own country. Uh, you know, I mean, as I uh, as but, I mentioned, but but more broadly than than here in the U.S. Oh, I think th- I think uh, abroad they are as well. That's certainly the the trend line. I mean, this is going to be a very difficult one for. This is the aspect I think that's going to be the hardest for the Chinese to uh, escape, if you will. Um, we're seeing. Well, do some- you think they re- do? You think they realize that now? Well, uh, that's a good question as to, A, how much it is dawning on them. My understanding is that within the system, this is certainly coming up, you know, in, in leadership deliberations. Have we blown it here? Or, you know, will this now mean that we're lumped in, you know, with the Russians forever? Because that's not what we want. Some, I think, largely in the security and intelligence services are suggesting to the leadership that, well, what we're seeing in Europe is really all about Russia. And so take the case of, say, Germany, for example, because that's one that they they do very much pay attention to. Um, you know, I, my guess is those guys would be saying, this is about the relationship with Russia, uh, a wake-up call for Germany and other European countries as to, you know, in theory, how close, if you will, militarily Russia is to them. And so there's that backlash against Russia, but that not, may not necessarily translate to us. And then I think there are others in the system, I would put them more in the sort of uh, diplomatic uh, and foreign policy advisor community who are who don't like the cozying up with Russia, um, who are trying to say no, this is a, a really big deal, and so we need to alter the policy. So I'm wondering, you know, if if, if they're missing if they're missing a big point here, right? And, and and I'm wondering to what extent this should be a wake up call for them, right? Is despite all of their talk and all of their thinking about the decline of the U.S. and the West, we're in the middle of displaying really awesome power, right, mm-hmm. by the United States and our allies. And, um, and against resilience. Some, and resilience, right? So so I wonder to what extent that is resonating in China and to what extent they're thinking about that. Oh, most definitely. I, I'm, I'm sure that they are. Um, and interestingly, you know, again, a lot of observers tend to say, well, you know, since they started using these phrases like uh, the East is rising and the West is declining and so on, you know, that just shows that they certainly believe we're in in terminal decline. I think that that is their conclusion. That's certainly Xi Jinping's belief. But I think it's very important to dissect that a little bit and and try to understand why and how that came into being. Um, You know, you'll recall, obviously, after the global financial crisis in 2008, there was a large community of Chinese analysts and and certainly some in the leadership who were saying, you know, that's it. It's It's the death knell for the United States. Interestingly, my understanding is that Xi Jinping, who was vice president at the time, and a member of the Politburo Standing Committee, was one of the few people in the leadership who were arguing that let's not uh, count the United States out and their ability to rebound from these sort of things. But then we elected Donald Trump. (laughs) And I think in his mind and in the mind of a lot of the other leaders, that was uh, the final straw in terms of demonstrating not that we weren't powerful, they still think we're powerful, but that we were broken, if you will, internally. And in fact, that's a bad combination, still very powerful, but broken, and therefore unpredictable and dangerous in their mind. And um, do you think in any way they're, they're reassessing the, the broken part? 
I don't think so because I think they understand that our domestic situation is still uh, highly problematic. You know, obviously this is looking like a win, you know, for, for both those things we highlighted, the unity amongst ourselves and our allies and the seriousness of purpose with which the United States can still execute uh, when it wants to. But on the other hand, I think they feel that that is not changing the fundamentals of our domestic politics and that, you know, whether this fall with our midterm elections or in 2024 with our next presidential election, a lot of those characteristics uh, will continue to be dominant no matter how well we do in this particular scenario. I also would say that um, my guess would be that as the Chinese are weighing this in the balance scale, they have to be probably putting some pretty heavy weight as well on Putin's side of the the scales, right? That he has made a massive strategic blunder here. Um, And therefore, they're not going to give the United States, I don't think, more credit than they're due. And I I guess that some of the debate in the United States, right, whether that what Putin did was the right thing, right, or the wrong thing, you get the small group of people who say, go Putin, right? Well, yes, there's that. (laughs) They they read that, right, as America broken. Yes, they certainly would. And, And I think the other thing that's interesting, too, just to come back to do they see this as in their interest and how they might frame the situation. If you're Xi Jinping and the leadership and you accept this idea of this multipolar, pure politics world, and you also accept that arguably for the first time really since the Mao period, their assessment is that major power war is not only probable, it might be likely, and with the threats that Putin has been issuing and so on, it could be nuclear, um, then therefore they have to guide themselves accordingly, and in observing what Putin is doing in Ukraine, my guess is, with that uh, intellectual framing, they see what he is doing as totally in keeping with what we might call a great power playbook or a Cold War-style playbook, and what they're doing is uh, clearing, if you will, the U.S. and NATO out of there near abroad. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Chris Johnson. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. So, so Chris, the Russian economy is in serious trouble. Yeah. Um, you, you know, deep, deep impact from the sanctions. Will the Chinese give the Russians an economic lifeline? Oh, I think most certainly, but not a blank check. And I think that's an important uh, distinction to make. So there are several factors. Obviously, uh, China has a huge thirst uh, for Russian energy products, uh, gas, oil, etc. Um, as we saw in the context of the meeting um, uh, on the margins of the Olympics, you know, large deals were signed again for natural gas and so on. So that I'm sure will continue. Uh, the Russians are losing market share uh, and people who will be willing to buy those goods. And I think the Chinese will take as much of it as they can get. Uh, interestingly, a key agricultural product, uh, especially in this year, will be wheat. Um, you yeah, know, the, the Chinese yeah. are looking to have the worst winter wheat harvest in the history of the People's Republic of China. That is not a good thing in a year where you have a party congress coming up in the fall, where Xi Jinping is looking to extend his uh, tenure into a, a third term. Um, and, you know, Chinese, average Chinese people, the Lao Baixing, if they can't get wheat to make noodles and so on, that's a, that's a serious uh, stability problem for 
for, for the leadership. So uh, in those areas, let's call it the commodities and the minerals and you know that sort of stuff, the energy, I think they will. Um, the way they'll probably do it is to put the emphasis on using their policy banks rather than their commercial banks. You know, the commercial banks are too exposed to the U.S.-dominated financial system to take those kind of risks. But the policy banks, which aren't as exposed in that regard, what's a policy bank? So it's things like China's import-export bank, China Development Bank. I these see. are uh, policy see. banks. You know, all countries have these these policy yes. banks, yes. Uh, but theirs operate in a unique way. And then, do you think, do you think, Chris, that the situation could get so bad in Ukraine? Putin uses chemical weapons or, God forbid, a tactical nuclear weapon. Do you think it could get so bad that China would distance itself from Russia or are we stuck where we are? No, I I think if if he were to go to those kind of lengths, I mean, I I, I suppose my sense is that what the Chinese are thinking and what the whole world really is thinking is that, you know, the next, what would we say, seven to 10 days, you know, are are pretty critical, right? And uh, we seem to be at a juncture where, Putin is certainly continuing to try to amass the force that he would need to to uh, really go at uh, Kiev and the other large cities uh, very, very strongly. Um, if in the process of doing that, uh, it's not going well, or they continue to have the logistical problems and other things that we've been seeing that make them less effective militarily, and they were to consider using chemical weapons, uh, my sense is that that would probably be a dividing line for the Chinese, although um, it wasn't in Syria, right? Uh, and and so that's a, an interesting thing to think about. On the tactical nuclear weapon issue, I have to think that that would be a very difficult one uh, for the Chinese to be able to, to stand by them. And just, you know, kind of coming back to the economic piece real briefly, uh, talked about the commodities and so on, where I don't think the Chinese will throw them the lifeline is on the technology restrictions. So the U.S. use of the foreign direct product mm-hmm. rule to, um, you know, deny certainly the Russian military and other key government agencies access to technologies and equipment, uh, as we saw in a, a piece the other day where Secretary Raimondo from the Commerce Department did an interview and indicated that um, Chinese companies like SMIC, uh, their uh, chip manufacturer, and Lenovo, the computer maker, and Xiaomi, uh, the mobile phone maker, the U.S. is sending very unambiguous messages that if they were to seek uh, to uh, help the Russians get around those restrictions, it would be bad for them. And if you're a company like SMIC in China that has been on a knife edge of being put on the entity list and so on, uh, all through the Trump administration and even into the Biden administration, my sense is it's not worth it to you to help the Russians evade those restrictions. So, Chris, I want to switch gears here a little bit and talk about U.S. policy and what we are doing and and what we're not doing and what we should be doing. And I really want to talk about two things. One is I have a sense, I don't have any inside information, but but I have a sense based on on what senior policymakers are saying and and kind of reading between the lines that that in their mind, this is not just about Russia and Ukraine, but this is about democracy versus autocracy. And if that's the case, first, first, do you get that same sense that I do, number one? And number two, if that's the case, doesn't that make it more difficult for, for China and how to position itself? Yeah, I think it does. Uh, and I, I agree. I think that's certainly possible. Um, one thing that's been interesting, you know, just to observe is that the statements from the U.S. side seem to uh, be getting sort of more and more ambitious, if you will, in terms of uh, what our goals and aims are perhaps what we might like to see out of this crisis, you know, that that Putin having clearly made what seems to be a pretty serious miscalculation 
perhaps that's something where ultimately there could be a situation where he's no longer in charge of Russia or there's some sort of some sort of shift. I think the uh, autocracy versus democracy kind of us versus them framing is very important here because when you frame a relationship, especially with a country like China, I mean, I think in my sense, Russia certainly deserves this at this point uh, in that they have invaded another sovereign country and unleashed the biggest humanitarian crisis in Europe, uh, arguably since World War II. Um, that makes a lot of sense. When you apply that same framing to the Chinese who haven't done those things, uh, maybe need to put a not yet <laughs> in there, but right. um, they haven't done those things, uh, then I think you deny yourself a, a pretty wide range of both tactical and strategic flexibility uh, to produce, pursue your own interests. And I do have concerns that that's what's going on. This is why I think we see uh, this framing of a new access as I highlighted earlier, from some quarters in the Biden administration. It's, I don't think this is an official administration policy. I think they're still battling this out internally. The second issue, um, second policy issue I wanted to ask you about is, 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 are there fissures in the Russia-China relationship that we should be trying to widen? And if there are, do we actually have the ability to do that or not? Yeah. Uh, you know, this is obviously the hardest thing uh, to to try to determine. There's obviously instant analogies that come up in the period where we were able, of course, to the Chinese had already, of course, split with the Soviets in the Sino-Soviet split in the 60s. Uh, but strategically, they were not aligned uh with the United States at that time, and that was that was the coup. There is a thought, and has been a thought for some time, that perhaps uh, we can work with Russia, you know, now against China, and you know, right. uh, and I think on as you mentioned the uh, the sort of far right community previously. When they look at uh, the Russians, they see people who are white and Christian and uh, and very conservative socially. You know that appeals to some folks uh, in in our governing system. Uh, my view is it would be dif- very difficult uh, to try to identify those fissures uh, and two whether or not we could actually identify them well enough to be able to exploit them. I think is is a very risky game. More importantly, I think it's the emphasis should really be more on if you want to achieve that kind of a result. I would say stop lumping the two of them in exactly together. Yes, is China enabling what Russia is doing? They absolutely are. Does that mean that they should be fundamentally treated like them? I'm not so sure. I mean, the risk if you're the administration, of course, is if you were to add some carrots, you know, I mentioned earlier, there's there's some big sticks <laughs> being put out there in terms of threatening Chinese companies and so on. Let's say we were to use some carrots tariff reduction or or other things that would be of interest to China. And the Chinese don't play ball. Uh, and you're going into uh, a midterm election and it gets out in the press that you had done that. Um, charges of week on China would probably be fast and furious. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery Starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. 
That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Chris, as you know, the focus of much of the commentary about China's reaction to Ukraine has focused on Taiwan, with the question being, right, is is what is China going to take away from Russia, Ukraine with regard to, you know, its view that Taiwan is part of China? How do you think about that whole thing? Well, it's definitely on everyone's mind, and, and rightly so, because uh, there are some similarities uh, but between the two situations. Uh, what I don't think we can take away is that, and and really haven't, and, and the facts have shown this at least thus far, uh, was that the Chinese were not ever going to view uh, the situation in Ukraine as an opportunity. You know, while the U.S. and the West are distracted to uh, invade Taiwan, for example, you know, there, there has been some, some thinking out along those lines, uh, nor uh, do I I think they would look at that situation and say to themselves, well, this teaches us certain lessons about, uh, you know, would our military be as effective uh, in, in an invasion of Taiwan uh, or would we be suffering from, you know, the same problems the Russians are and so on. My sense is the only way it's really affected China's view, and it's important to highlight this, that, you know, Taiwan is on its has its own cadence. It's on its own timeline of sorts within the Chinese brain. And I don't think that that is uh, that is affected at all by the developments, you know, on, on the ground in Ukraine. I think to the degree it matters, it would be those two areas that we highlighted earlier, which are, you know, the, the strength of the U.S. response in terms of sanctions and technical restrictions and so on, and the ability to hold the coalition together. I think both of those things have to be impacting China's thinking about, you know, their calculus on Taiwan. I think something that's interesting, though, is that Obviously, the Politburo discusses, you know, so what about Taiwan <laughs> on, on a pretty regular basis? <laughs> sure. and, and, you know, well before this crisis and so on and so forth, my sense is they had had discussions along these lines. And again, interestingly, Xi Jinping himself uh, and, and a few others, is my sense, uh, were saying things like, uh, you know, hey, let's look at this carefully. You know, this would not be Tiananmen again. You know, Brent Scowcroft would not be getting on a plane and flying over here on a secret trip to basically tell us it's all good. You know, there there would be heavy, heavy sanctions. And of course, in the Chinese mind as well, and, and I think the current situation would only serve to reinforce this, uh, there's another issue for them that is every bit as existential and, and omnipresent for them as the Taiwan situation, and that is breaking through the middle income trap by 2035. And it's very difficult for me to see how that would be served by a military attack on Taiwan. And maybe that has been reinforced definitely. in Xi's mind Most by what definitely. has happened here. Most definitely. I want to jump back to to policy for one second. And, and you were talking about carrots and sticks. I, I think that's the right way to think about it. And then we had talked earlier about how there is a, a, a perception in the world that China bears some responsibility here for what happened, given its strong support for Russia and for Putin. Do you think we should be fanning the flames of those views around the world no, or not? No, I don't, uh, because I don't think it's uh, it's in our interest per se. Uh, you know, my view of it is, and we've seen some evidence of this, you know, a desire to suggest that the Chinese did have advance warning or that at least they attempted to persuade the Russians to delay the invasion uh, until after 
the Olympics. Um, you know, I think uh, there's a lot of question as to how authoritative and how accurate some of those assessments are. So my view is that, um, you know, in that circumstance, they would be very much focused on trying to figure out what the next stage calculations would be. Chris, how do you think the Chinese would prefer for this thing to end, given where we are now? Quickly. <laughs> uh, you know, obviously, every day, if you're Wang Yi, the foreign minister, uh, you know, you're writing a very difficult thing, trying to continue to, uh, you know, balance issues, as I said before, uh, you know, how right. to think about keeping the Europeans on, on side. Um, you're trying very hard not to use the word invasion and so on. But at the same time, you know, you're picking up just pure Russian disinformation on things like these, uh, you know, U.S. biological weapons labs and in Ukraine and so on and so forth. So, you know, you kind of get the sense they're not trying that hard. In terms of how it, uh, how they'd like it to end, I think they would like to see Putin uh, show a little more leg and being seriously willing to negotiate. I think they're very concerned that uh, President Zelensky in in Ukraine has uh, perhaps become quite enamored with his. Um, I guess you'd call it sort of almost rock star status or or Che Guevara type status, although that didn't yeah. that didn't work out too well for Che. <laughs> but um, you know, in other words, they have concerns that both sides are pursuing kind of maximalist you know approaches to the negotiations, and I think that unnerves them a lot. I think they would ultimately they would love to see Russia just you know pull back um, and you know uh, somehow try to neutralize. Um, that portion of Ukraine through negotiation, I think that's probably quite fanciful um, on, on their end of things. Do you think they have any influence at all over what Russia does? Do you think she has any influence with Putin? That's a critical question. I, I think they definitely do. Um, you know, my sense is that uh, they have absolute leverage, right, in a certain way, and that if they too were to cut off uh, purchases of Russian oil and gas to not purchase commodities, you know, we're not uh, letting them, you know, gain access to the banking system and so on, that'd be it, right, for Russia. They have very few other very few other outlets. Uh, so they have that absolute leverage. I think because of what we've been discussing, though, especially their strategic framing and so on, they're also absolutely unwilling to use that, except in uh, real extremists. Um, Chris, uh Last question, um, which takes us away from from Russia, Ukraine. Uh, the U.S. now has a Indo-Pacific strategy. Secretary Blinken put it out, quite frankly, without any fanfare at all. Got virtually no attention from the media. We still have not seen a China strategy, at least not a public one. I don't know if there's a classified one or not. What do you make, first of all, of the Indo-Pacific strategy and the lack of a public China strategy. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And to be fair to the administration, I think one of the challenges is that it, it sort of got lost, right, almost in the in the backwash of concern about Ukraine, and then obviously uh, what what subsequently has happened uh, with the invasion. So um, uh, that's not entirely uh, their fault. I, I think one reason why the media didn't perhaps give it a whole lot of attention, as you say, there wasn't you know, the same kind of buildup, right, that you might typically see before the launch of a, a strategy report like that. So say an article by a senior official in foreign affairs to kind of, you know, tee up where we're going or something like that, that would generate some of that interest. I think also a lot of it is the content, you know, it's it's really mostly things that the administration has said before, such as, um, you know, the Indo-Pacific strategy is, is not the China strategy, they say at that document, but a at the same time, is very focused on China's, uh, I think the phrase they used was much more assertive and aggressive behavior. Um, you know, from my perspective, the interesting piece as well 
was this notion of uh, shaping the strategic environment environment in which China operates rather than trying to change Chinese views. And I mean, I think that's actually a very solid way to frame the situation. I think the challenge with it is, though, that it's another sign that the administration uh, now a year plus into its tenure, still hasn't really moved off what we might call uh, a surrogate China strategy, which they seem to have been following from the beginning of the administration. And what I mean by that... What do you mean? What, yeah, yeah. What do you mean by that? Yeah, what I mean by that is that there's two pillars to it in my mind. The first is um, domestic strengthening, right? So Build Back Better and uh, the, the Competes Act and uh, building chips and all of that stuff, you know, make ourselves more ready for the competition. And the second right. piece is coordinating and uh, collaborating with our allies allies and partners. But what's missing in the equation is you keep China at arm's length, like they'll do anything to to avoid directly engaging uh, with China. And the the problem, I think, is that China is such a big country, so influential uh, and economically powerful and so on. You just can't do that. I I personally thought we were beginning to see a shift in that at the time of the video chat between uh, President Xi and and President Biden at the end of last year, in that uh, there uh, there was a notion of establishing, you know, these four new dialogues to discuss the important issues, so on and so forth. But since then, we've, I think, seen all of that fall off the table, to be fair, largely through Chinese intransigence, but the result is the same. And then I think the other challenge for the Indo-Pacific strategy, of course, is there's not really an economic strategy in there. You know, there is the Indo-Pacific economic framework. And my understanding is uh, USTR Ambassador Catherine Tai is about to go out to the region again to, you know, talk that up and and have some discussions. But there's nothing in there about market access issues, you know, traditional free trade issues. Um, Obviously, we're not going back to CPTPP, the the, uh, uh, framework that succeeded uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership when President Trump took us out of the TPP. And in the region, economics is security. So without that piece, um, it's they're going to struggle. The other thing that's missing, get your reaction to this, the other thing that's missing is objectives, right? What actually do we want this relationship to look like over the long term, right? And and what are we willing to allow them to do? And what are we willing not to allow them to do? It seems like we've never made that clear. Yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely true. And to be fair to this administration, I think it's been a challenge uh, that's been unevenly met, I guess is a fair way to say it, by each of uh, the recent U.S. administrations, probably going back to um, the Bush, the younger Bush 43 presidency, but certainly in the Obama administration and Trump and so on, which is uh, taking the first step, which is uh, every administration must do, which is, as you say, to kind of, uh, as we would say in government, do a rack and stack of, uh, of China's global ambitions. Where they tend to fall down is taking the next step, which is, you know, to be fair, much more difficult because it involves risk, which is to say, okay, of those ambitions that we uh, believe China to have, which of them, to your point, might we be able to accommodate or, or live with, especially in, a, in an era where accommodation <laughs> has become a dirty word. But I think it's important in that uh, the risk you run if you don't do that second half of the exercise is you end up being so busy you know, the Trump administration would say rivalrying, uh, the Biden administration says competing with China across all domains that you lose focus. Whereas I think if you 
do that, here's what we can live with, here's what we can't, cannot. It allows you to draw much clearer red lines for the Chinese and to focus on the things that really are uh, the building blocks of U.S. power and influence, one of them being the dollar's role in the global financial system. And when you do things like uh, partially unplug Russia's central bank uh, from SWIFT and the, the banking system and so on, you send real signals uh, alerting people to the dangerous side of, of that, that role of the dollar in global finance. Yeah. Chris Johnson, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a treat to talk to you. The same, Michael. Thank you very much. That was Chris Johnson. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. The show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.